those are literally the two things that caused me to be like, shit, I got to get out to like one of these coasts and like start creating. And it also caused me to realize I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm debating or, or wondering, should I have gone and tried the entrepreneurial pursuit? Powder Keg fans, this is episode 116 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we will be speaking with Raz Razgatis. He's the co-founder and CEO of Denver-based Flowwater, which is a company that's revolutionizing the way people get drinking water. Raz started his career in uh, Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson and Eli Lilly, uh, spent some time in Indiana, which is my home state. Uh, and since then, he's been the CEO at several high-growth companies uh, out to Silicon Valley, back to the Midwest again, and he's combining 20-plus years of leadership and tech experience to deliver Flow Water, which is a water refill station product that keeps 2.38 plastic water bottles from reaching our landfills and oceans every second. I love that stat and I love that he's doing that. So I'm super glad to have him on the show. He's got lots of thoughts on the art of building a disruptive brand and using innovation and technology to change paradigms to save the planet. Raz, thanks so much for being here today, man. Matt, thank you. It's great to be on the show and I love talking to another Hoosier and someone that's building in the Midwest. Absolutely. It's a, it's a real pleasure. And I, I love the product that you're building and I've been reading all about it. Um, and I love that you're building it from Denver, Colorado. But first, I want to, I, I, before we dive into what you're doing now, I always like getting a little bit of the backstory because I always think it's very interesting to hear um, how a founder got to doing this crazy thing called entrepreneurship, which, uh, you know, with, with all the data and statistics and knowledge that we have, really no sane human should actually go and do. Um, but I, I really appreciate what you're building uh, now. How did it all kind of get started for you and, and how did you end up in the Midwest? Uh, well, when you stand up in the Midwest, you mean the most recent track well, take, back to the Midwest, right? Or from the very beginning. Take me all the way back to the, the beginning, beginning yeah. man. I, uh, I was born in Texas at an early age. And, and of course, when I'm talking to a Texan, I claim that all day long. Because uh, <laughs> that has about the highest ROI of any state. But uh, for all intents and purposes, was uh, raised in Ohio. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my dad taught at Ohio State and uh, was uh, responsible for a variety of academic and had a variety of different academic roles. And then he actually ended up running uh, commercial licensing and business development for Battelle Labs in Columbus, Ohio, which I don't know how well known it is now, but back 25, 35, 45 years ago, it was fairly well known. Yeah. And uh, I went to school, I went, as you know, I went to a small school in Indiana, Anderson University, which um, I, anytime I'm talking to somebody in New York or SF, I basically just tell them, because they've never heard of it, I tell them it's the Harvard of the Midwest uh, because I get to position this however I really want to position it. So <laughs> I, in fact, I've said that so many times. I've said Anderson University is the Harvard of the Midwest so many times in California and Silicon Valley that I have now run into people where I'll tell them the name and they're like, oh, I have heard that's like the Harvard of the Midwest. It probably started with me saying this over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of our, funny. Our, our, first, 
Our first <laughs> guest on this show, as you pointed out, was also an Anderson University grad, Christian Anderson. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 got it's a good vintage. I mean, like, these, <laughs> and, and I think it was the same was the same year as you, right? He was the same year. Yeah, That's he's crazy. a super talented guy. Small world, small world. So I, I went to uh, undergrad at AU. I thought going into undergrad, I wanted to either be a pediatrician or a trial lawyer, which would have either probably made me a pretty scary pediatrician or a pretty scary trial lawyer. I saw cadavers, decided I cannot go through med school um, dealing with, with things that are bleeding. And <laughs> literally that was just one of the drivers for me was I just was like, I don't have the stomach for it. And then the other part of it was, I think something about entrepreneurialism is that I, I do not think that there's some genetic code absolutely unequivocally for most people. I think there's, I, I do think there's a binary on it, which is some people are completely wired to be an entrepreneur and from the very get go and some people are not. And then I think there's a fair amount in the mid range, which is, you know, why I think you see a lot of people in SF that are entrepreneurs is because those people that are in the mid range are just much more as a result of, you know, your surroundings to be able to identify pathways to become entrepreneurial. And so I don't, I don't know that I, I, I would certainly say I'm entrepreneurial, um, but you know, I don't know that I had the 100% binary, I got to do this. In fact, I, I, I probably don't have that in the sense that, you know, my very first job coming out of school was at Johnson and Johnson. And so as I got into, you know, my first year of, uh, undergrad, you know, I recognized I didn't want to go spend seven years in medical school. Uh, I didn't have it in me to do that. So I kind of lost that dream. In fact, very many, very few people don't even know that that was, that was a dream of mine kind of going into undergrad and, and quickly lost it um, for, for those reasons that I mentioned. But I, I loved business. I was passionate about business. I uh, ran a 70 person kind of startup company when I was in college, in between some years in college, that was very entrepreneurial, but very, very low tech, I will add. And we might come back to that. But what? I really enjoyed business and wanted to get out in the trenches. And I ended up getting a marketing undergrad from Anderson University. Um, and leaving school as I was getting ready to graduate, I really wanted to move. I wanted to go out to New York or SF. Like those were the places, you know, I felt like at the time, I felt like, well, this is where you have to be if you really want to make it. Or I felt like these are super competitive places and I want to go compete in super competitive places and like go play, you know, football at that level, kind of metaphorically. And I don't think that's the case anymore. That used to be the case a lot more. I mean, of course it did just because there was not nearly the infrastructure, but now there's great tech companies being built all over the US. But in any case, when I was graduating, I, uh, I had three job opportunities that I'd narrowed it down to. One was with IBM, one was with uh, HP, and another was with Johnson & Johnson. So kind of going out of school, you're thinking like, all right, like this, this is like what I'm geared up for. I should go get my classical training, like J&J. Each of those companies were kind of the Google of that time uh, in 96. And so I took the job at J and J moved out to the East coast outside of New York city. Um, and so that was kind of that, that was the exit point of my Anderson university undergraduate experience. 
uh, and my entrance into business. But of course, you know, as the story goes on, I did not stay in that environment very long because I kept having this not nagging underbelly of an entrepreneurial bug where I wanted to not necessarily have to be the person that goes and starts stuff. Like I sometimes hear entrepreneurs talk and say, well, I could never, that's why I, like, I want to go work for myself. Um, that's an idea that I can't relate to. Cause I think also, I think the reality is if you're an entrepreneur, you're working for somebody. I mean, it might be a board, it might be investors, it might be, you know, there might be advisors or their customers, but at the end of the day, you're working for somebody. So I, I had this nagging entrepreneurial uh, proclivity that I've enjoyed working at big companies and at mid-sized companies, uh, but I've also really enjoyed starting and building things. Did, did you get that sort of foundational break into the world of business uh, training and skills that you were looking for when you went and worked for Johnson Johnson and Eli Lilly? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think that uh, yes and no. I, I think the short, the short answer is really yes and no. The longer answer on that is yes in the way that, you know, there's some really, really smart people working at J&J. And there was a lot of just templated training, programmatic around like best practices around selling, business development, uh, but then also marketing. I ended up uh, after J&J working at HQ in Eli uh, Lilly's headquarters in Indianapolis. And I launched a, uh, what's now, you know, I was on the launch team for a billion dollar drug. It's now a billion dollar drug. When we launched, it was a couple wow. hours. And I think we got it up to like 400 million at the time that I'd left. But, um, uh, you know, in many ways, you know, marketing strategy, business, you know, corp dev. I think Fortune 500 companies are a terrific breeding ground for learning how to navigate and deal with a lot of different dynamics, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different politics and structure and methodology and thinking. Uh, Do you I have, don't. Yeah, I, was just gonna, I was just gonna ask if you have like one thing um, that maybe you repeat to your team often now yeah. that, that you learned back in your Fortune 500 days? I, I'll tell you, actually, I learned it at my commencement at Anderson University from Mitch Daniels, your one-time governor. Oh, who, wow. My who ended up becoming my mentor for years. Uh, and I still will periodically email him. But, oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what he said to me at commencement. It, but, so this is my dad dragged me up to... to so Mitch was running was some big muckety-muck at Lilly at the time that he spoke yep. at my commencement. And then he went on to be like secretary treasury for Bush and governor after that and, and, and so on and so forth. But he's running Purdue university now. Now he's Yeah. Now he's running Purdue. I've, I've actually tried to reconnect with him. I haven't been successful yet. And there's not a lot of business <laughs> in West Lafayette for me. Yeah. So it's hard find time to do it, but I'd love to connect with him again. But, um, he said, my dad dragged me up after and he's like, Hey, you're going to go work for J and J. This guy's a big deal at Lilly. Go ask him some questions. And, uh, Actually, my dad asked the question. This is like typical, like, it's not that I was shy. I just like, I wanted to go hang with my friends. It was graduation. And so I go up and I meet Mitch. I was excited to meet him. He's a great commencement speaker and a terrific individual. And uh, my dad said, hey, what's one piece of advice that you would give a young guy starting out on his career um, that he should take with him forever? And Mitch, like unflinchingly, just said, always do the right thing. 
And I would, look, I don't want to sound self-righteous either. I would love to say I've always, always done the right thing. I've, I've fouled that up before, 100%. Yeah. But, uh, you know, part of life is fouling things up and then doing your best you can to fix them and get back and redirect towards a mantra or a set of beliefs or, or your vision or your value. And so uh, that story, in, in fact, I ended up later after I got hired and recruited by Lilly uh, and moved back to Indianapolis, after I'd been working for J&J for years, I emailed Mitch and I reconnected with him and he became a mentor of mine uh, while I was at Lilly and he was at Lilly. And uh, that was one thing that stuck through with me is, you know, always do the right thing. And, uh, you know, when it comes time to making a decision and we don't know what to do, because they all seem like they're good outcomes or um, it's in the gray zone, you know, we'll use one of those as a litmus of yeah. what's, what's the right thing to do here. I mean, hopefully you're always starting with that, but it doesn't always mean that you can start with that lens and then you can go like, you know, five miles down the road and find out, okay, wait, maybe that wasn't the right thing. And so revisiting that throughout uh, has been helpful for me in a career, both aspirationally, both kind of uh, thematically in terms of, uh, you know, how to operate. And then also correctionally in terms of, hey, like, you know, screw that one up. Like, I got to like get back on making sure that, you know, I am or we are doing the right thing. That's really good advice. Uh, simple, but Profound. And, and Not all the I have a tie back to Indiana. I promise. And Mitch that's Dale, great. Governor and Anderson, but a lot do actually. I mean, that's where like so much of my formative uh, uh, upraising and learning came from. Uh, my under, you know, earlier years in in uh, Ohio, but then my undergrad and my my grad program in Indiana. You gotta gotta start with the right foundation. And it's, it's one of the great things about people in the Midwest, by the way. I mean, truly, uh, I love hiring 100%. people in the Midwest because there's just a different kind of value ethos that genetically kind of has gotten uh, developed in them. So not to say that people don't have great values in New York. I love New Yorkers. I, I mean, like if there's anything I'm probably most genetically predisposed towards, it's being a New Yorker. But uh uh, there's something unique about people in the Midwest, and it's just one of the attributes that they have with them of, you know, street hustle, hard work, uh, and a variety of others. So, Do, Doing the right thing is a good part of that. I, um, I'm curious to know what kind of finally tipped the scale for you to actually bite the bullet and follow on some of those uh, entrepreneurial tendencies. And, and I'm wondering if there was someone or some ones around yeah. you that kind of pushed you over the edge. Yeah, there was actually, he, I'm not going to say his name. Um, but there was a guy at, I remember this conversation. This is 20, I'm 46. This is 23, 22 years ago. Uh, and there was something that had two things completely tipped me and they were like, not the defining moment, but it was a moment of truth that caused me, to radically think about executing on moving entrepreneurial. And so I was in Indy uh, at the time, living in Broad Ripple. And uh, I was also doing a lot of travel to California and San Francisco. So I, you know, fly out to SF and get fly. Ironic, I live part-time still 
seven minutes from SFO. So, you know, I kind of have this um, split dichotomy where I, my primary residence is in Denver, but, you know, I spend a lot of time in, in, in SF and have a place out there as well. And, you know, I'd fly into SFO, I'd, I'd get to the rental car place, and then I would get on the 101 and I'd be driving up and down between like SF and San Jose. And this was like 97, 98, 99. And everything was buzzing. I mean, you just like billboards and like pets.com was the thing. And Dr. Coop, probably no one listening even remembers Dr. I was in the, I was in the e-health space. Ultimately, that's what caused me to make the jump. But that was a big deal on Medscape and WebMD. And, you know, some of these still exist. Um, and on and on, excite. And I remember just like feeling this level of electricity and this energy around what could be created. It's one of the things that I love. And I think it's one of the things that entrepreneurs love is they love creating. They love the idea of, of ideating and creating and executing, like real, also executing real entrepreneurs execute too. So like everyone, that's all that other stuff is just daydreaming. You're not an entrepreneur if you're just doing the other things and not doing the executing because quite frankly, probably most of being an entrepreneur uh, is actually in terms of raw time is executing. Um, and so that was a tipping point for me as I remember like landing one day in SF, driving on the 101 and seeing all this. And I said to myself, I have to get out here or I have to figure out how I can get in this ecosystem. And then I'd go back to Indy and I had this nice house and like super comfortable and the people were great. I was on this career path that was really at least safe or so I thought. And, uh, you know, I thought it was, I was on a pretty fast career trajectory. And then I remember talking to this guy, I remember his name. I remember his first and last name. I hadn't thought of his name in 20 years plus, and I can remember his name. So I'm now I'm trying to be careful not to say it. And I remember asking him talking, in a, at the end of a meeting, how many, how much time he had left of retirement. And he basically said X number of years, months, and days. And he'd been there, he's been a long timer. And I remember leaving that meeting and I never forgotten that because the only other time I've ever heard anyone describe like time left in that context was when people were in movies in prison talking about how many days and, and weeks and hours uh, that they had left to serve. And that sounds really ridiculous, but honestly, those are two things. Like I had all these other things. I had business plans I'd been writing. One of them was for a startup called Doc Knowledge that was gonna be in an e-health space that I was working on in 97. Like I had, you know, I was, I was networking with people. All these things were happening. Those are literally the two things that caused me to be like, shit, I gotta get out to like one of these posts and like start creating. And it also caused me to realize I don't ever wanna be in a position where I'm debating or, or wondering, should I have gone and tried the entrepreneurial pursuit? Cause I totally admire people that uh, spend a career in a company like Lily, super admirable. Uh, there's some really good work that's being done at companies. I'm not anti big company, but sure. for me, I felt like I needed to go and do something that uh, was like an aspiration of mine. And I felt like I'd been programmed to go do uh, and that I would never regret at least pursuing it and that I might seriously regret it if I didn't. So that was, 
that was actually the genesis that sparked me. And that's what got me out to uh, New York City. So I, I, I said, I either want to go to SF or New York. Um, and I had actually, I had a job off offer that popped out kind of nowhere and got me into a startup. So I was like the seventh person hired in a startup that just raised uh, $10 million or $7 million in capital in nice. New York City in 2000. Actually, that's when I joined. So it took me about a year to kind of figure out where I was going to go, how to get out there. So, so I really started that process in mid-99 and moved out there in uh, mid-2000. Had, had that first internet bubble already Yeah, popped? it wow. did. It popped, it popped. So it popped in March of 2000. And so, you know, like, I think if you left Lily in 99 or 98 for a high-flying tech startup, you know, everyone's a millionaire on paper. Like, everyone's crushing it. I think it made a lot of – I first of all, I don't know anyone that left Lily. I was the first person that I know that I remember at the, in that era of, of several years. I'm sure people left. I didn't know anybody because the, the deal at Lily was that you get in – you like become a manager, you become a director. If you're on this path, even if you end as a director, you're gonna end up with millions of dollars worth of stock options after 30 years. You're gonna get the retire, you have this great package. So nobody left then. Now people leave all the time now. Since I left and things turned over and Lily had layoffs and like the reality is nothing is safe anymore. Sure. Like being an entrepreneur ironically was more safe for me than staying at Lily. But to your question, the bubble burst in March of 2000. And I left in June of 2000 or July, something like that. And so wow. I remember when I leave, I had people sit me down and they would say, like, I mean, they were just very direct. They said, this is probably one of the dumbest things that you, are, <laughs> you have ever done or will ever have done because you're on this great career track. And if, and not everyone said that, by the way, other people will pull me aside and be like, hey, like, run, like go for it, make a run for it, like get out of here and do what you want to do. Like not because they didn't love it, but they, you know, like somewhat vicariously living through me, I yeah. think. But yeah, I had, um, it, it didn't seem like the wisest decision on paper at that time. If someone had laid it out, bubble had burst. Um, I'm trying to think actually in terms of the timing of it all. Yeah, it had, it, it had, yes, it had. And then I went through another brutally difficult. So the bubble at burst still went out. And then we um, went through 9-11 a year later. Yes. And that was, I don't know. I mean, just economically, I'm not, obviously it was way more tragic than the bubble bursting, but economically, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that if you were in an early stage company and a lot of your business was in the tri-state in that time, like you had multiple compounding issues there. And so I went out and was in New York from 2000 to 2002, where I was, uh, I ended up being the VP of sales and marketing for an early stage company that was in the e-health space. It was the web's very first syndicated health content creation vehicle. Wow. Uh, doesn't sound super sexy, but what we were doing is we were powering people's health content across the interweb and creating our own content and syndicating it across the web. It's like PR Newswire for health content. What, what did you find was the biggest difference between corporate business versus startup business? Well, I mean, the speed, I, I cannot describe the speed and the urgency and 
the raw, like it's, it's like going out and going from like, I think middle school, like playing middle school football or sports, just pick your sports, soccer, baseball, whatever, to playing like college level in terms of speed. I mean, you know, I don't know that the people are any smarter. In fact, they might not be smarter at all. The people at corporate might be actually like kind of IQ. In fact, I'm quite sure of that. Like the people that I worked with, Eli Lilly, and I worked with some wicked smart people, and these all have like, for the most part, prestigious MBAs or PhDs or MDs. Uh, none of which I had, by the way. And um, the speed, though, is unparalleled. And, you know, New York, but then layer a startup on top of that, having come from Indiana, Fortune 500. So that's one. The second is meritocracy wins, or it should win. Uh, I, I, I don't think you will find many successful startup companies where meritocracy doesn't generally win more often than not. Yep. And that is not the case in big companies. I mean, I, you know, I, in fact, I just talked to a group of executives um, at a Denver Sustainability Summit. And then I, before that, I talked to some in Atlanta, some Green Business Forum, a bunch of uh, sustainability executives from Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things that I really encourage them to do, because they asked, if I had any takeaway for people that are carrying sustainability back to their corporation. And one of the things that I really encourage them to do was like, I mean, I guess if I were to synthesize the comment, it would be blow shit up, which is go and try a bunch of stuff and like pilot and experiment and like come up with a thesis, have a hypothesis, and then go start executing stuff. And uh, I think that element of executing and meritocracy and driving things to the point of a binary outcome, right? Which is that binary outcome is not called like, hey, let's like dish something up that we did it and it doesn't look so good, but like let's kind of put window dressing on it so that people don't know what really, really good is versus really not good. And it's one of the jokes that I make from um, I, when I'm interviewing, I'm actually interviewing a CFO right after this. And one of the jokes that I'll make is, tell me about your least strength, which is, in other words, tell me what you suck at or you're not good at. But like at Lilly, we used to say, well, what is your least strength? And sometimes the, the commentary gets so marginalized and diluted that it's a real threat to getting visibility and clarity as to what does the landscape look like? And the reality is, as entrepreneurs, we're all going into things that they don't make sense. If they made, if it was obvious, it would have already been done. So we're already going into things that are murky um, and we're trying to find clarity amidst that murkiness, which is why, you know, meritocracy, the best idea winning is so critical. Uh, and then putting points on the board. I mean, I think that's the other thing is the ultimate irony, and I'll end on this one uh, before you, you go to your next question. But you know, I remember leaving at Lilly and I was getting kind of counseled of like, hey, this is super safe and you're going to like end up a millionaire here. You know, the reality is uh, a bunch of people years later and not that many years later that were all super talented, hired from like Wharton and like Harvard and all these feeder schools into Lilly. A bunch of those, you know, hires that were at my level got laid off. They got let go, which was unheard of at Lilly in corporate because of market changes and contractions and whatnot. And they weren't laid off because they were poor performers or not the strongest performers. It was tenure, right? And so like I had the exact opposite experience where
we did this startup company, you know, we raised a bunch of capital, capital markets constricted. Um, we couldn't raise more capital. So we either had to like, basically our portfolio was uh, our, our, our lead investor was Omnicom, it was an agency in New York. And they basically said, we're closing the fund. If you guys can make it on your own and figure out how to do that, great, you can make it. Otherwise, like all of our portfolio companies are just gonna go into BK. And uh, all of them did. Actually, I think we're the only company that returned capital to Omnicom out of all the investments that they made. And all of them didn't make it except for one, and that was ours. And the reason that we made it was because uh, we were freaking relentless and tenacious and we had good luck, but we figured out how to succeed. And I guess my point is, as part of that process, we hired a bunch of people, we had to let a bunch of people go. We went from like seven people to 70, 80, 100 people, down to like 60 people, down to 30, back up again. But I had a job throughout all that. And why did I have a job? It was because you know I was one of the performers. I mean, all everyone that performed in that company did not lose their job and it wasn't based on, it was based sheerly on merit and not time and not relationship and whatnot. In fact, I saw some very uh, trusted friends of the founder of that company get let go in the process. Very brutally difficult. That would never happen in a big company. So that's my third one is that, you know, meritocracy really, really wins the day. By the way, when I say meritocracy, that doesn't mean you can just go be an asshole and do whatever you want either. Like sometimes I think people think, oh, if like, I'm kicking ass and I'm performing. I can do whatever I want. And you know, I, that, that I, I've learned as well. I mean, I've, I've, I, I probably erred on uh, the side of taking meritocracy uh, too liberally and just you know, being a, too much of a bull in the China shop. And it's hard, you gotta temper your own self. But I just want to be clear, you know, meritocracy is about performing, but it's also about lining within the norms and the cultural expectations of the company that you're joining. Any advice for people who work at startups or high growth tech companies to make sure what they're working on is providing the most value? Uh, yeah, I do. Actually, I, I've never heard anyone ask that question before, though I ask a, in an interview, it's a great question. It's, that's just generally a great question for humanity, which is, <laughs> you know, how, how can I be adding more value? I mean, really, uh, and I think the best thing that they can do, one, is really understand the strategy and the KPIs, the key performance indicators of their organization. And in fact, I'd, I'd like to, I'm halfway tempted to walk you over to a scorecard that we have. So we have a big digital dashboard in the company and on it usually are five KPIs or six KPIs for the business. And these are the things that are the macroeconomic indicators that are most essential. Now, because it's in December, there's one KPI. It's down to one. We've hit all of our numbers except for one. And it's down to literally one number. So I had him change the board last week and I said, it's all eyes on one number. And so one is to know what the KPIs are of the organization and the strategies and really understand it. I can understand that depending on where you are within your company, it might be, it might feel like it's a, like hard to understand or, you know, it doesn't fit because you're seeing a segment of the business rather than the macro of the business. But I really encourage, like in your town hall meetings every month or your huddles or what, ask your CEO the questions around strategies so that you understand. Because believe me, he or she desperately wants you to understand what those are and know them so that you can be operating in accordance. So that's suggestion number one. 
Suggestion number two is, uh, I, hate, I hate calling people managers, their managers or their bosses. I, I sometimes will slip and say, I, I call them now, I, I, I call it your up team. Your boss is your up team, uh, you know, and your direct report is your down team. And um, I would ask your up team, you know, that's the next thing that you can do is at the end of every one of your one-on-ones, which I'm a fan of one-on-ones. I mean, I don't necessarily need to have it scheduled, but I think one-on-ones are essential. You have to have them for alignment. Otherwise, like everyone's running in all sorts of directions and it's your responsibility as your up team to be regularly having reporting with your one-on-ones. I use a very specific um, template for that with all my direct reports. Some of them might hate it. I don't know. I don't really give them the choice, but it's so that there's a discipline. I believe there's a best practice and we can modify and improve some things. But I think executing against best practices where things are known in my business, so many things are unknown that there is a best practices way or a variety of ways of conducting a one-on-one that is better than not having one and just choosing your own adventure. So part of that one-on-one and one of the things that I encourage all of uh, my, my, teammates across Flowwater to do with their up team and their one-on-one is ask them, what could I be doing better or doing to add more value or having a bigger impact in the company? And I think if you understand the first question around what are the KPIs and the key fundamental business strategies, e.g. what has to happen by the end of this year or in 2020, what needs to happen by the end of 2020, if you're doing that, and then you're aligned with your direct report or your up team and constantly asking them for feedback, you're going to get, you're going to make more progress. Like, I think, you know, one of the difficult things, I'm trying not to give you too many pieces of answer here, but I have, you know, there's things that are flooding to my mind, but I think one of the things that is really difficult is giving feedback and, uh, I don't think anyone that's worked with me would ever accuse me of uh, difficulty in being direct. I, I think if anything, <laughs> they'll probably say I'm over to, overly direct, but it's a balance and it's hard. I mean, frankly, where I feel like I struggle the most is in how I do the directness. I, 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 for people that knew me 25 years ago, um, they would see a, a very noticeable improvement in my ability to, um, appropriately be direct in ways that are like empowering and encouraging. Believe me, it's not always the case even still. I'm sure people that are sitting out there like, well, wasn't so empowering and encouraging the other day when like you were raising pain about this issue. But one of the ways that I feel like you can get away with that, uh, first, first is you got to like people and you got to really care about your people because at the end of the day, I want, I want them to be successful individually because that's what's going to make the company successful. So this is like a little bit of, maybe the desire to have been a football coach, perhaps at some form in my life of, you know, extracting that 20% performance index at that last 20%. But one of the best things that you can do is ask your up team and your colleagues for direct feedback. Like you're sitting in a room and you want, if you want to hear feedback, you need, you, if you want to hear a real feedback, you need to be prepared to hear like, it's not even good and bad. I think of it as feedback. It's not like, tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. It's kind of like, tell me, tell me about this thing that we're undergoing. And to me, it's not bad. If someone shits on something and they say, hey, like, I think it's a terrible idea and here's why. 
I want to hear that stuff. And the faster as a um, employee boss relationship to, can get to that level of directness, it actually builds trust and confidence. Like you can enjoy, I, I, I have conversations with board members where, you know, they're like, Hey, I think you're thinking about this totally wrong. Or I think you're missing something. It's like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not defensive about that at all. I'll say that to them as well. Um, it's a real freedom that you have in being able to operate that way. It's really hard to get there. I think it's one of the hardest things in terms of people dynamics to get there. And as an employee, people are like, oh, it's my boss's job to do that. One of the best things that you can do is help facilitate that with them by asking for feedback and saying, hey, can I be direct with you? Will you be direct with me? Like lay it out there for me. That's really great advice. I, I feel like I could probably ask you 12 follow-up questions to well, I feel like I could give you 36 answers to those 12 follow-up questions. I, I have a hunch that you, that you could, but I, I want to make sure um, I ask you about what you're doing with Flowwater because I love the yep. mission. I love the impact that you're making. So I, I would, I'd love to just know, how did you even come up with this big, hairy, audacious goal and the idea in the first place? Yeah, well, uh, let me... Let me tell you a little bit of a story around that. And so I was, uh, I, we just, pre-Flow Water, I just sold a company, it was a restart. It was a tech company that had failed. I got brought in by the VCs to reboot it. So I'd done a tech startup in New York, kind of from scratch, then I did a total reboot. It was, frankly, it was a disaster of a company. And uh, I would never, ever recommend someone go into a tech company at a series A that didn't, or a series B that was totally dilapidated and had no proof of concept and they were trying to reboot it. You just are better off starting a new company. So I did reboot it. We ended up selling it. It was not a lot of fun, but I learned a ton. That's, I, I learned a lot from that. And around this time, I had this huge transformation uh, physically. I had three big transformations that happened. One is I had kids. So I've got two amazing daughters. They're uh, 16 and almost 18 now, Zoe and Royce. And that was one. So they were, you know, 10 and 12 or so at this stage. Second transformation that I had was uh, kind of moving away from the pharma space. And, you know, one of the things that, and this is, again, not a dig at pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies, but one of the things that I started to feel really strongly about is moving kind of the progression of humanity and medical care and naturopathic care and alternative care and just self-care towards preventive measures and things that were oriented around wellness. You know, and there's not one brand director or vice president at Eli Lilly that gets paid on prevention or any pharmaceutical company, you know, J&J or Pfizer, or you pick, pick a company, they don't get paid on, they get paid on maximizing revenue. It's not, you know, appropriately prescribing it for this condition or that condition. It is based on revenues. And when you're doing that, you're not thinking about the total health of a person. And frankly, at a certain point, I think doctors in many ways conventionally have forgotten that. And so the second transformation that I had, and I'll skip all the, getting back to your question, I'm kind of in the middle of the question, but I'm telling some stories alongside of it, is this narration, if you just heard a gong ring, we just closed the deal, I think. So um, there's- Time to update the scoreboard. 
Yeah, that, exactly. That's exactly what's happening right now. Exactly. That's great. Uh, the scoreboard is literally getting updated real time. Second thing was this migration towards wellness and wanting to see like a sense of humanity and, and health and fitness um, be different than what it was, like more preventive rather than treatment oriented. And kind of tied to that was my own third revelation, which is, you know, I, I grew up on Dr. Pepper and donuts. I love Dr. Pepper. Once a year anymore, I'll have it. That's it. Once a year on Thanksgiving, it's a tra tradition. I stopped that crap a long time ago. But, uh, you know, I played sports in college. So, like, I didn't, you know, I was fit. When I was 25, 30, and I was eating donuts every day, like I was in college and drinking Dr. Pepper all the time and eating like crap, I got to be 290 pounds at one point. I'm 198 right now for comparison. Wow. So wow. I literally, I, I think two, actually 280 was my high. And so I had this huge transformation around being programmed. And I, and I, this is where it all starts for me around, I think, I think sugary carbonated soda is like a legalized form of liquid heroin. I really do. And the reason for that is it's just like big tobacco did in the sixties, which is you market the teens, you market the kids that are at college, you get them hooked on it, it has all these addictive properties, you make it cool, you brand it. And then suddenly people have multi-decades, lifelong addictions. And there's a lot of data that shows that nicotine addiction is every bit as strong or second strongest to heroin, second strongest to heroin. It's highly addictive and it creates lifelong dependencies that people are forever stricken with and has horrible health outcomes. I think of big soda as the same way in many ways. And I saw, I got programmed and then it had these health impacts and I had this huge revelation where I started running marathons and I started eating super clean and I gave up all that crap. But that's kind of like the gateway, the gateway drug that a lifelong of bad eating. So I started seeing my daughters you know, I'd show up to their soccer games and like people would be bringing Cokes. And I was like, holy shit, like what, this is how it happens. Like, this is how it happens. So what? I, it got me, that's what got me excited about flow water is 70% of Americans chronically dehydrated. There's a huge plastic epidemic that, that is ongoing. Uh, no one had done this before and water hardware had not been reinvented. And uh, so I had a business partner that was actively involved in the business at the time. In fact, he was the founder I joined him as co-founder, but the, but the real, I think, evolution of the business to a platform play has been in the last couple of years, which, you know, this product you see behind me right here is a refill station, but that's around, that's the tip of the spear of building in kind of platform of water infrastructure throughout the world. That was a really that. long answer to that question, but there's some storytelling that has to go along with that uh, because that's really what you know, I like it. It's rarely, I think, like someone's like, oh, I had this magical idea of like how to make X, Y, and Z, and what have you. And sometimes, but it's usually from a problem or a systemic change or like a philosophical like reason for being or something that's like really soul seeking in a sense, uh, coupled with market opportunity. Quick time check. Uh, do you have another five, 10 minutes? I do. Okay, awesome. You, Are you, you cool with going? Five, 10 minutes. What's that? Do you have another five, 10 minutes? Oh, for sure. All right, great. I, I definitely do. Um, and, and I want to, I want to hear more about the story because, um, it sounds like a huge, I mean, it is a huge transformation shedding almost a hundred pounds and changing a lifestyle. I mean, some people struggle their whole life to make a change like that. 
what was it for you that made you say, you know what, the way I'm living is not how I want to live? I'll tell you, there's, um, it's funny, you're asking these questions that are literally drawing me back to the most distinctive defining moment that I've recalled before in the past, but it's like driving complete clarity to, the, to a moment in time. Uh, and by the way, I want to acknowledge, I think like one of my passions is on like this kind of pursuit of improvement and optimizing oneself towards it's in other words, it's getting the last 20% out of somebody. Right. So I don't like getting someone from like zero to 50%, you know, and that's like a lot of Lily, by the way, is taking like raw talent. And like, but it's not that I don't like it really. It's just that it's too inefficient and it's not as fun as like, how do you extract the last 20% from someone when they don't even know that they got it? It's taking someone who maybe thinks of themselves as an A player, but you know they're actually at B and yes, getting into A plus. Exactly, 100%. So, and, and I think some of that is around how do you activate these things in your life, either remove a roadblock or activate these things that you're on the cusp with. So going back to your question about fitness, you know, I don't, I, I remember two things triggered me. I remember, gosh, living in New York City in 2002, year after 9-11, I think they had the marathon the next year, they did. And I remember watching the marathon and um, I was married at the time and I was married for 17 years. I was like one of the trap, you know, one of the casualties, not just of being an entrepreneur and startup, because I wouldn't blame it on that, but that added a lot of stress to it. So I'm no longer married, but I remember telling my wife at the time, I'm going to run the New York City Marathon someday. And I was like starting to get out of shape at that point. And it was kind of like, it kind of became a joke to her, I think, after me saying I was going to run a marathon for like 10 or 12 or 14 years. And then one day I'm like in my mid to late 30s and I'm like, man, I'm getting like really big and I'm not moving in a marathon direction. And I remember seeing all these before and after photos of someone that had taken some protein product. It was that, and then they'd done some workout and then there was some clean eating program. Um, and I remember just looking at all these before and after pictures and I'm looking at all the befores and I'm like, that looks like me, that looks like me, that they're fatter than me. And then I'm looking at all the afters and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I can do all these other things like moderately well, maybe not out of talent, maybe it's just sheer brute force, but like I can in hustle and tenacity, I can do all these other things. Like why the heck can't I do this thing called get in shape. And I finally came up to the realization that um, I just needed to put an action plan in place. And part of the action plan was, you know, one, I remember like all these things converged at one point. One was realizing I wasn't going to run a marathon if I didn't like make a dramatic change. Two was seeing all these before and after photos. And three was actually realizing that you can't outwork a bad diet. Like you just can't do it. And I never really at the time knew that because programmatically all the way through high school and college, that's all I was doing all day long. Like didn't matter what I, you know, I was yeah. like, Hey, a little bit more weight for the football field or whatever it was. And then I started like studying this stuff and I realized, man, I'm consuming like 500 calories of soda a day, like multiply that during the course of the year. So those three things like were a huge, like transformation shift. Then it literally came. All right. Like set a plan. Like what's the goal? What's your start date? 
Like go have your binge donuts and like go have your five sodas and your two bags of Cheetos and I had a date and I was like, this is, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna follow the plan. I'm gonna follow off the plan. I'm gonna kind of kick my ass a little bit and get back on plan, but also be gracious enough with myself that I didn't guilt me into doing it. And that's kind of what started for me, like a seven year, you know, I ended up doing a bunch of marathons and doing an Ironman and I'm not some like fitness maven, but like compared to what I was 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I am. But uh, that also led me to flow water in some ways as well around how do you activate, how do you use a company as a platform to activate someone's employee potential? And I don't think of them as employees. I think of them as like teammates and ambassadors and colleagues and people that are like partner strength. I think of them as all co-founders, even if they joined, I had someone join today sitting across me. You know, I think of Joelle as a co-founder, but um, you know, how do you also do that in time with aspiration around what you want for humankind or society or a certain demographic? It, it occurs to me that this was a personal paradigm shift. And in a lot of ways, what you're trying to do with Flowwater is a paradigm shift at a global scale. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about how, how that journey has been for you? I can. So the, so the, whole, the whole strategy around Flow Water, so the vision of the company is to radically change the way um, people view water and that it is distributed and consumed. Uh, and the mission of the company is to put an end to single-use packaging, not just single-use plastics, but single-use packaging. Let me kind of translate what that means. If you look at the problem in the world today, uh, and let me start with the US. There's a separate worldwide problem that's really prevalent, but we don't have time to address that. But let me just start with the United States. Problem in the US is that, you know, once upon a time we had pretty good drinking water. And then bottled water came out in Perrier in the 70s and 80s. And then there was like clearly Canadian, it was like flavored sparkling water. And then, you know, Aquafina and Dasani launched like mid 80s and you had a proliferation of 90s uh, era bottled water and packaged water brands. And now there's like, you know, you go to Whole Foods, there's like 60 different SKUs if you go to a big enough Whole Foods of just packaged water. So we took something that was free and available at the top. And then what we did is we created this insanity almost to the point of like, well, not almost, literally to the point where one of the top water brands is buying it from Fiji, shipping it to the US, putting it in plastic packaging, it, shipping CO2 spewing all over the place, drinking it, throwing this plastic, shipping it back to Asia, ending up in oceans where it turns into microparticulates where now the average consumer, the average consumer drinks two credit cards worth of plastic every month, just from, just from drinking tap water if it's been unfiltered, unpurified, or bottled water, by the way, that's a recent study out of SUNY. So, wow. problem number one is like, big bottled water looked at this and they're like, hey, we can make a ton of money doing this and get people like hooked on brands and like, you know, uh, taste and um, flavor profile or mouthfeel or whatever it is. 50% of packaged water is just tap water in a package. Bottled water companies don't sell bottled water, they sell plastic bottles that happen out of water. Right? That's what they sell. So, however, there's something that's super interesting that's happened, which is tap water is no longer seen to be desirable from a taste perspective or trusted. 70%, over 70% of Americans don't like or don't trust tap water. And that could be real or perceived. I just gave it uh, just, it was like six, eight months ago, but I was in Michigan, uh, Detroit doing a TEDx talk, talking about 
water. And part of the underlying thesis is that, you know, today we have to deal with things like glyphosate, Roundup, that are in our tap water that 35, 45, 55 years ago were not in existence. And now we literally are drinking weed killer on tap in microdose amounts. And just like cigarettes, one cigarette's not going to hurt you. Uh, 10,000 is not good for you. 100,000 will kill you. And the same goes with microdosing things like uh, contaminants that are being distributed in our water. And so, you know, this is not the municipal water company's fault. I mean, this is, this is, this is glyphosate. This is Roundup issue. This is a microplastic issue. Uh, there are over 300 pieces of microparticulate in every liter of water, whether it's bottled or tapped now, uh, over 90% of the time. And so what we're building at Flowwater is the world's first decentralized distributed platform that puts a flow water like device or piece of technology wherever ultimately there are water egress points wherever there are water faucets we want to own the last six feet of water infrastructure so effectively what we're doing is we're treating it tight twice we're taking water using the best of the municipal to chlorinate it distribute it deliver it even through even though it's through very aging infrastructure it needs to be cleaned twice at the distributed source so that consumers prefer the bottled water. And that's what we're doing with flow water. So now that when someone installs a flow water refill station, we'll see a two to five fold increase daily in hydration. And this is wow. in all schools, corporations, gyms, doesn't matter the environment. And by the way, they had water there before. It's not like we're taking this out to like, you know, the middle of Arizona saying, hey, well, people drink more water and there wasn't water. We're putting this next to a water fountain, a five gallon jug or water cooler. And also we're seeing a 50% reduction in soda and coffee consumption when simply we have a water refill station, a flow water refill station present. So what that means is they're drinking more water, we're driving the outcomes. And that's the whole strategy of our company is we're on a mission to radically change the way that people think about water and to decentralize it through this democratized platform because every consumer deserves access to clean drinking water that they trust. I love the mission and I, I, you've, reached some really impressive scale. It was, uh, I think at last I read was 2.38 plastic water bottles a second that you prevent from reaching landfills based on the, the infrastructure that you've built already. Yeah, we'll be, we'll by, by just to give, yes. And by the middle towards end of next year, I expect by the end of next year, we're going to have saved 500 million, half a billion single use package water products including plastic bottles from entering ocean and being uh, dumped in oceans, lakes, rivers, and landfills. And the goal is 1 billion by the year 2022. So we'll be getting close to the high 100 millions by the end of this year. I mean, we've only got about three weeks left, but by end of next year, I expect we'll be well over 500 million saved. Uh, and what I'm really excited about in that number is it's a real number. I mean, recycling doesn't work. If, if anything, I, look, people should recycle. Don't get me wrong. I recycle. You probably recycle. But the reality is almost all the data shows that 75% of uh, Americans do not recycle. That number has not changed much. So you should recycle. But the better solution is uncycling. Like, how do we create solutions where people don't even need to create the product to distribute something that then has to be done something with in the first place or in the last place? And that's what we're doing with Flowwater is by building this infrastructure um, and so, you know, I'm really not only proud of the 60 employees that are sitting in these walls and throughout the United States, I'm not only super grateful for 50 investors have 
that have believed in uh, me and many others in this company and this vision. But also we have 5,000 customers, almost 5,000 customers across North America and, and, and millions of consumers that are making a migration in a way to something that's not only cooler, but it's also uh, a rebellious way to say no to big bottled water and big plastic and packaged water products and to say yes to something that you're actually going to drink more of and do more of. So I have a lot of gratitude for the people that are now that were early believers in a mission and a cause and that are carrying that forward. Now it's a clear mega trend. I mean, yeah. away from plastic and packaging. You can well, it's, it seems like um, you, you've got some real momentum and I could probably ask you another two hours of questions just about how you built that momentum and built that movement. Um, but we're gonna have to save it for another episode. Uh, but before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one question, which is, uh, for those that are listening uh, in the powder keg community uh, or the listening community, how can they help with the mission of flow water? Uh, it's, great, it's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, one, is, one is I'm a huge fan of starting with incrementalism, right? So just even like on my like kind of weight loss or fitness journey, you know, some people like to make dramatic changes, but I think being intentional. So I'll give you an example. Sometimes I'll be in an event and someone will show up and they'll want to refill with their single use plastic and they're all embarrassed and like ashamed. And they think like, I don't know, they think I'm going to like, you know, admonish them or like shame them or something. And like that to me is my biggest high five moment is they're just stopping. They're making the intentional decision to use one less bottle by refilling the one that they already have. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from that, which is progress you know, it's just like running a startup company and scaling a company is there's never one thing. It's actually 10,000 things executed on really, really well that end up building this company. And that's through, like in my case, lots of super talented teammates and some awesome investors and great customers. But I think my, my takeaway would be make, you know, for sure, I'd love you to have a flow water refill station in your hotel, school, corporation, gym, whatever it is. But that's not the pitch. The pitch is try to just make some mindful, meaningful changes to reducing the impact and, and, and evangelizing as to why that's aspirationally a good thing so that together we can crush plastic and crush the business of big bottled water. That's a great call to action. I'm gonna encourage uh, those that do and listen to this episode uh, to, to reach out and, and hit you up on social media to let you know they made the change. And uh, I just want to say thank you, Raz, for sharing your story, or at least some of your story with us here today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Matt, thanks. You're, you're a terrific interviewer and easy to talk to. And, and thanks again for having me on your show. It's great to reconnect with somebody from Indiana. You know, it's easy when, uh, when I'm talking to an entrepreneur that's inspiring and has a lot to share. So I, I really appreciate it. All right, great. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thank you to Raz uh, for coming in on the show today. Be sure to check him out as well as Flowwater at myflowwater.com. That's M-Y-F-L-O water.com. And for links to his social profiles and other people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode, make sure you check out the show notes on powderkeg.com. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Mm -hmm.